0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm your host, Jen Williams. Today, we're featuring a negotiation over something different. Not peace, not prisoners, but water. The water of the Colorado River, to be exact. The Colorado River provides water to about 40 million people. They live in seven US states, 30 Native American tribes, and the area of northern Mexico. But sadly, the river has become drier over the last several decades, largely due to climate change. So the U.S. states, Indian tribes, and Mexico have had to make some tough decisions about how to reduce water consumption. You may have heard about the negotiations over the Colorado River that ended back in May.
1: ...has reached a landmark water deal with several western states to stave off an immediate crisis with the Colorado River.
0: California, Arizona, and Nevada will agree to take less water from the river. In exchange, the federal government will pay a billion dollars to key players in those states. But the deal is temporary. It expires in 2026. Now, we're going to cover that deal in an episode next week and look at how the parties are approaching a longer term agreement. But for today's show, we're focusing on an earlier round of Colorado River talks from 2007 to 2012 that tell us quite a lot about resource scarcity and the negotiations that are required to address the issue.
1: The United States and Mexico have agreed to new rules that govern the sharing of Colorado River water.
0: The negotiations were not easy. Mexico lost much of the territory along the Colorado River during the Mexican-American War of 1848. So for many Mexicans, the issue brings up the painful history of colonialism and war.
2: In Mexico, there's a history of colonial domination by Spain. Almost every single state that you could describe now involved with the Colorado River, and that would be Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, Nevada, California, they used to be part of Mexico in terms of the territory, and so in terms of the narrative with which stakeholders look at that land in the first place, let alone the world resource, there's a sense of what could have been and what was lost.
0: Bruno Verdini followed the talks closely and interviewed just about everyone involved. He'll be our guest this week. Verdini is a negotiation expert at MIT and Harvard. He's also the author of a book about the 2012 agreement called Winning Together, the Natural Resource Negotiation Playbook. Before becoming an academic, he served as the deputy director for international affairs at Mexico's Ministry of Energy.
2: It was a great environment in which to experience the talent, the spark, the charisma that people need to build bridges of trust and being able to move policy from what's imagined into what's actionable.
0: From Verdini's book, it's clear that the negotiations were a true collaboration among many different people. We've chosen to focus on how each side approached the talks and eventually agreed to compromise. The result was an agreement that not only reduced water consumption, it actually helped each side. Verdini calls this a mutual gains framework rather than a zero-sum mindset.
2: The environment cannot lie to us. Unlike other endeavors, in politics and in business, nature knows best.
0: One of the first things they had to negotiate was how to determine water shortages. The United States wanted to measure this based on water levels at Lake Mead, which is located between Nevada and Arizona. Lake Mead is the largest reservoir in the United States. But Mexican representatives were worried that the United States might fabricate the numbers to trigger artificial water shortages. Okay, that's enough from me. Here's my conversation with Bruno Verdini about the 2012 Colorado River Agreement between the United States and Mexico. Just kind of lay it out for us when these negotiations started, what did Mexico want? What did the US want specifically?
2: The US wanted a binational accord that would honor the internal agreement between the seven US basin states about how to deal most effectively with water shortages along the Colorado River Basin. And that would entail that in future cases of extraordinary drought, the annual allocation of water that Mexico receives would need to be reduced in the same way that it was going to be reduced for the U.S. Basin States. On the Mexican side, it was understood, the rationale on the U.S. side was understood, but it wasn't feasible to take that back, such a deal to the Mexican stakeholders without thinking about a larger set of issues associated with improvement of the infrastructure of the canals on the Mexican side, environmental restoration of the delta, and thinking about what could happen if, for X, Y, or Z reason, in the future there were water surpluses in the basin. And so they wanted to persuade the United States that this could be accomplished. And that's where the adventure began.
0: One thing I thought was really interesting... um was about the environmental kind of restoration and how, you know, Mexico really wanted this. It was a bit of a new development to involve environmentalists on the Mexican side, rather than just the energy agencies. And Mexico really wanted some of this water to be allocated to restoring part of the environment. And the United States was like, I don't know, I feel like maybe they're just going to say that, but they're actually going to use it and divert it to farmers. And so you wrote a lot about these field trips, right, that, that helped kind of both sides really understand the other side's position. So can you tell us a little bit about those two trips and the role they played?
2: Mexico had a concern, which was if we're going to determine water shortages based on the elevation levels at Lake Mead, how can we know these levels cannot be artificially managed by the U.S. stakeholders? To the U.S. stakeholders, this sounded as, No, Lake Mead is our core reservoir for all the U.S. basin states. We have a set of rules that protect all the seven basin states from such shenanigans, so you don't need to worry. But one thing is to say so, and now is to invite the stakeholders to visit this space, talk with the people who manage them, and as a result of it conclude, you know what? This is persuasive. In addition to the fact that, that the Mexican stakeholders had to be trained, their technical experts, through funding of the United States, to finally use the same modeling system to account for water availability in the basin, which was necessary because on the Mexican side, there are not any reservoirs of the stature and dimensions of the U.S. side. And so Mexico neither had the experience or the data to trust.
0: One thing worth noting here is just how large these delegations were. They had politicians, technical people, even folks who ran local water agencies. And at some point, some of those people made an important observation regarding the canals on the Mexican side.
2: As they were touring the region, the U.S. stakeholders, particularly the people who led the water agencies in Nevada, Arizona, and California, they recognized, hmm, the Mexican canals are not lined with concrete. This means that every single time that water is shared from the US side to the Mexican side, a significant portion is lost to evaporation and seepage. If, collaterally, we were to line the canals with concrete, then we would be able to suddenly have more water. Yet, since it has not yet been distributed, nobody politically is going to cause problem if you decide, on the Mexican side, to sell back to the US side in exchange for investment in lining the canals with concrete, a percentage of that water at Mexican rate payers' prices, which are much lower than the US rate payers would pay to buy water rights on the US side. And all of a sudden, you've turned the water shortages negotiation into a water surpluses negotiation.
0: So they had these trips, which helped them understand the other side's perspective. Beyond the political representatives and the technical experts, a big group in these negotiations was actually NGOs.
2: Historically, all the way into the 2000s, both in Mexico and the U.S., the approach from the NGOs to water subjects was, how can we trigger action through litigation, through confrontation? And that is both a very time-intensive process that undermines trust, and that is adversarial. So it doesn't lead to creative solutions. They eventually decided, well, if we were to convey to the stakeholders on the US side that if we're invited, not only as observers, but as stakeholders, we might on occasions have interesting insights, and if they're receptive, we're going to present them. They recognized and they were increasingly given more power to propose solutions
0: the NGOs were also able to test out certain ideas and bring in some funding.
2: They recognized that one of the ways to persuade stakeholders on both sides of the equation about the feasibility of some of the environmental solutions was to say, let me pilot how we as NGOs, when we buy a set of specific water rights, and we behave as we're suggesting that you two governments behave, it leads to X, Y, and environmental value, that financial stakeholders are happy to invest on because it delivers also financially. And so let me show you how what uh, you then can try is effective. And then that way, of course, by uh, proof of concept, it's much easier for the government stakeholders to come on board. And then the NGOs were even more creative by being able to, on occasions, expand the pie and whichever solution uh, the two governments could come up with They would say, and we're going to enhance it by bringing to bear other insights and resources that we've been able to gather.
0: There was another key group added to these negotiations that was also a tough sell, representatives of the U.S. states.
2: The U.S. had to negotiate with itself who should be at the table. And that process required also persuading the Mexican stakeholders that the U.S. would always have much larger delegations. And so let's agree on, instead of having just federal stakeholders negotiate with federal stakeholders on the Mexican side, because whenever we return, the U.S. federal stakeholders would be describing the negotiation to the U.S. Basin states, describing what they tried. And the top decision makers at the states would say, I cannot believe you must have negotiated wrongly. You're not hard enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strategic enough. So at some point, the U.S. federal stakeholders said, believe me. You should be in the room. So instead of explaining to you, let's just bring you into the room and you'll see no matter how you approach it, it is not feasible for the Mexican society because of A, B, C, and D. But it's much easier to see it. Fine. So once they found that solution, the challenge was, well, the Mexicans were, but we don't have the state stakeholders. We're only two anyway. We have the federal stakeholders. We have seven basin states. It's going to be like 30 against four. And so there was a sense of you're going to have so much leverage over us. So you had to also come to the agreement that it was to the advantage of the Mexican stakeholders to be exposed to all the decision makers at the basin, because they are the ones who would be able to come up with creative solutions since they are the ones who own and manage the water in the basin.
0: So the U.S. and Mexican sides were building trust, learning to understand each other's perspectives, and bringing more people into the discussions. But then a crisis occurred an earthquake in the Mexicali Valley. How that disaster affected the negotiations after the break.
1: Hello, Foreign Policy Podcast listeners. With so much news out there, it's hard to look past the headlines to what really matters. Did you know that FP has a slate of newsletters designed to cut through the noise? Our newsletters are a gateway to the best reporting and insight featured on foreignpolicy.com. What's more, they are free. If you have just five minutes to understand 24 hours of world news every day, try FP's World Brief. Interested in what's happening in China? Well, then FP's China Brief gives you all the context you need. And Situation Report is our weekly newsletter bringing you the inside scoop on what's really driving U.S. national security policy. There is so much to discover on FP. Head to foreignpolicy.com newsletters to check out all of our free email products. That is foreignpolicy.com slash newsletters.
0: Welcome back to The Negotiators, a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm Jen Williams. Before the break, you heard about how the delegations from Mexico and the United States were beginning to negotiate a new agreement on the Colorado River, specifically how to reduce water consumption fairly. But just as the sides began to make progress, an earthquake occurred in the Mexicali Valley. This was the biggest earthquake to hit
2: this region in decades. And just to put it in perspective a little, this was bigger than the 1989 Loma Prieta quake that collapsed part of the Bay Bridge in San Francisco.
0: Bruno Verdini tells us how this crisis in the summer of 2010 became a turning point in the talks.
2: The humanity that the U.S. stakeholders showcased, both at the federal and the state level, there was a degree of posturing from some stakeholders on the, on the Mexico side, built out of this sense of mistrust in that decade of the 2000s, where through the lining of the All-American Canal with concrete, since it had been done, in the estimation on the Mexican side unilaterally by cer- certain U.S. states, that had led to a lot of frustration. And so there was the expectation that we have to remain adversarial. Then the earthquake happens. And as we know, in public policy, crisis provide a window of opportunity for people to change behaviors. On occasions, behaviors that perhaps the leaders on the Mexican side wanted to take from the get-go, but politically or publicly, they couldn't. But now it was an opportunity for the U.S. side to showcase we're going to put aside our long-term vision about engaging in water shortages. Let us show you how in this moment of, of tragedy we're there to support you. And the humanity and the empathy that you generate in such a situation doesn't take away anything of the leverage that you have on the U.S. side. It actually strengthened as it opened up the desire on the Mexican side to find ways to reciprocate that respect and care.
0: Right, because the Mexican side needed help with infrastructure, right? Because so much had been damaged in this earthquake. That, and so that gave the U.S. the opportunity to say, okay, well, maybe we can help fund this infrastructure in return for some water shortages.
2: Sure, and even more so as, as you're presenting it, it made it apparent to the Mexican stakeholders, hmm, wait a minute, we keep telling that we don't trust the American suggestion that we should decide water shortages on account of the elevation levels at Lake Mead. But if we refuse to do so, now that our infrastructure is crippled, well, they're gonna send their annual allocation our way and we won't have the infrastructure to receive it and we'll lose it. Now, is this a crisis just one time? Or could we expect in the future, again, a situation where some of our infrastructure is destroyed by earthquakes? Or are we saying no to an opportunity where the Americans are saying, hey, we're offering to store your water at Lake Mead. And no, we're not going to use it for hydroelectricity. And no, you need not worry that there's going to be any underhanded approach to how we manage the levels. And both of us will be benefited because nature really showcases that if you store water upstream rather than downstream, that helps significantly the sediments that eventually uh, reach the lower riparian. So even your agriculture side of the equation will be supported in Mexico. We already have built on the U.S. side the reservoir. So you're getting storage for free. And we on the U.S. side are happier because the higher the elevation levels at lake Mead, the less the evaporation. So we also benefit on the U.S. side from storing your water. Rationally, there's no reason to say no, but mistrust makes human beings go against their own interests.
0: Right, because I can imagine from the Mexican perspective saying, oh, sure, let me just store my water in your country. Like why couldn't you just decide that it's our water now? Sorry. But as you said, you know the US was like, look, you don't have the infrastructure to store the water. We'll do it. We have all these processes in place so you can make sure that we're doing it by the book. And you know, because of this earthquake, Mexico was like, all right.
2: Yes, let's negotiate the rules and policies around it. And it underscores how external conditions change the perspective, the entrenched perspective of stakeholders and how This is why at a higher strategic level, there's got to be a set of scenarios that people develop in terms of how to to attack a problem. People always have to think about their alternative. Are the outcomes that we generate from an adversarial perspective superior to the options that we generate through, through trust? If we do, then it's about setting the right incentives and mechanism to nurture that trust and to generate the benefits that ensure that both sides are happy to comply.
0: Right. And as you said, like the mindset shifted from a a zero sum, you know, mindset of of I win, you lose. And so this kind of adversarial approach to the, you call it the mutual gains approach, right? Yes,
2: yes, yes, yes. In a certain way, the, the two countries sometimes were missing on the opportunity to realize how their interests align as long as they are able to rethink how to highlight the benefits that are produced by cooperation.
0: So getting into some of the nitty gritty of the actual negotiating process, one of the things that I really loved was the use of what you call points of tentative agreement, right? So if you could tell us about that process and how that was different from maybe like traditional negotiating process, what was that? Were they kind of jotted down, we agree on this, but we'll come back to it? Can you kind of walk us through that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, a mistake that a lot of people do in their daily life, and certainly when you look at newspapers uh, from top decision makers, is you can't negotiate issue by issue and negotiate with ultimatums. Because when you do so, you're not giving the other side an opportunity to reconsider a position or a posture and recognize, oh, by the way, I can approach these interests in a much better manner. And so points of tentative agreement allow stakeholders to say, we're moving in a certain direction that could be feasible if we have a larger view on other subjects where we're also on board. And so by keeping all issues alive and being able to identify the traits across those differences, and those traits are not apparent from the get-go. And so If you keep things alive, you have a possibility to produce an outcome that is much more harmonious than if you put in writing and set in stone a subject, then the other side has no opportunity to move. And effective negotiation requires, yes, leverage, but also tremendous maneuvering room to save face because people in these negotiations come in with an audience that is not technically on how a subject sounds but rather has an emotional reaction to it and that's where the neuroscience how we behave as human beings come into play.
0: There's a moment in the negotiations that I found was really fascinating in terms of the NGOs bridging the the issues between both sides and that were lost in translation. Basically like the translator didn't translate all of the nuances and just kind of gave the bullet points and it came across as totally different to one side than the other and so you know the Mexican side thought they were saying one thing the United States side thought they were saying another thing and it was like about to break down and then the NGO steps in and says (laughs) Wait, wait, no, 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 you read this wrong. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: <laughs> you present the situation as the people I interviewed with that level of intensity because it was that dangerous. You know, in diplomatic protocols, countries in a way with the desire to to convey to their back table that they honor their heritage and their language, even though you'll have a majority of stakeholders being able to negotiate in, in a common language, they choose to negotiate through translators. Now, negotiation, given all both the technical data, but also the emotional data that you're communicating, doing so through a translator presents a challenge, a human challenge that the translator, either in writing or in person, can intentionally or not make mistakes. And so the episode you're talking about related to the fact that at the last minute, at a very high level on the Mexican side of the equation, going all the way to the president, part of the deal that the two countries were looking at in the footnotes, there was a request for a set of additional steps or measure that Mexico was requesting the U.S. consider. And to a certain extent, it will never be known why, those footnotes didn't make it to the document that the U.S. stakeholders were reading. So when they were reading it, uh, rightfully so, they thought, oh my God, we've been negotiating for over five years. We're at the end of the process. And these last minute requests seem like the Mexicans trying to leverage us and take advantage of us. And this is just outrageous. We might just really, in anger, break up the negotiations. And because the NGOs had stakeholders on both sides of the equation, they had read the document in Spanish. They said, this is odd. I mean, when we read it in Spanish, several of the suggestions make complete sense. I mean, if you read the footnotes, U.S. stakeholders would likely say, "Okay, let's come to the table. You, I understand your constraints. Let, let's make sure we address them." And so, because of that serendipity, or rather, because intentionally, the two countries, instead of keeping the NGOs at bay and have them as advocates or confrontational, invited them to own the process and contribute to it. This unexpected insight has nothing to do with environmental subjects, but has everything to do with cross-cultural communication allowed the U.S. side to come back and say, instead of fighting, could you send us again the document and can we make sure that it gets translated correctly with the right footnotes? And once that was done, they got back into rhythm and in agreement.
0: I mean, what a, you know, it's like a stop the presses <laughs> moment, like in a movie. I was just fascinated <laughs> by that. So toward the end of the process, the deal also almost fell apart because of the states and the U.S. states. Can you tell me about one of those last meetings where that happened and how did they get through it?
2: The history in the Rio Grande side of the equation in terms of how Texas has negotiated with a different set of states in northern Mexico made it so that when there was a recognition that on the Colorado River, the United States and Mexico had come up with really a constructive solution, it seemed that at the U.S. Senate, top decision makers on the Texas side of the equation wanted to link the approval of such a deal as a ploy to generate leverage to push Mexico into a different direction or approach in the Rio Grande negotiations. The U.S. in states, however, who have not two senators but 14 in tandem, were like the challenges in the Rio Grande are different than the challenges in the Colorado River. They involve other Mexican states and they have a different history We cannot allow the absence of cordiality on that side of the equation to withhold progress on our end. And so the U.S. basing states had to pull their weight at the highest levels, the Senate and in the White House, to protect what they had agreed to. And that's, when you look at it, one of the benefits of the U.S. political system and the reality that the states have ownership of these solutions and the ability to recognize that each region has different tendencies. So credit to the U.S. Basin states to protect their priorities and move forward.
0: Tell us about the, the signing of the agreement. This is in the fall of 2012. They finally get an agreement. What happened? How did, it, how did it go? And then maybe a little bit about the implementation afterward.
2: When the agreement was signed, it was evident that everybody involved felt Oh, this is a transformative change in how we relate to one another because five years of negotiations had not led to a short-sighted deal, but rather a change in the narrative that both sides had of one another. It had begun in the George W. Bush administration. It had continued in the Obama administration. It had begun in the Calderon administration, continued in the Peña Nieto administration, and not surprisingly, even during the AMLO and Trump administrations. These deals were not revoked because the right amount of incentives and benefits had been allocated. And that's the difference between an adversarial mindset and a collaborative mindset, which is if you are recognizing that the feedback loops in natural resource negotiations are going to be complex and unexpected as time goes by, You only have an ability to monitor, be flexible, and address new challenges if you've created a mechanism of trust. And in that mechanism, implementation follows, even across different political perspectives, because it's in your interest to keep complying.
0: What were some of the main lessons that you took away from writing this book and from interviewing all of these people and the experiences? What can we learn?
2: You get on the same page by ditching the draft counter-draft cycle. When you're trying to negotiate diplomatically, often the protocol is country X, let me propose to you how things should look like. Here are 100 pages of how sure our deal be. To which country Y reads it and comes back, oh, here are my tracked edits where I say no to the 100 things you propose. And that's how you start negotiating. That's atrocious. You're working against each other rather than side-by-side side against the problem. And so, to identify the problem, you need to have a Initial peer of, hey, let's sit with one another, identify the things that we're going to negotiate about. Let's see how the world looks from your perspective, how it looks from mine. Perhaps we invite some neutral experts who know about the subjects who can give me a lot of more background about how the legal system works in the US, about some water dynamics environmentally speaking that are relevant in Mexico. And once I have the lay of the land, and we speak the same model language, and we've done the tours and we've done the workshops then we can get into the nitty-gritty of negotiations.
0: That was Bruno Ferdini, a negotiation expert at MIT and Harvard. Ferdini is the author of Winning Together, the Natural Resource Negotiation Playbook. He interviewed the negotiators behind a 2012 binational agreement between the United States and Mexico over the Colorado River, called Minute 319. It specified Colorado River water allotments to Mexico under both shortage and surplus conditions based on the water levels at Lake Mead, and it invested in Mexican water infrastructure. The Negotiators is a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. Our production team includes Rob Sachs, Ashley Westerman, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, Jayfit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, Amjad Atala, and Dan Efron. Laura Rosprautellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nellifar Hidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show. Foreign Policy is a magazine of news and ideas from around the world. And we encourage you to subscribe. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation, where the most urgent issues of our time are discussed and debated. Tune in at dohadebates.com. Next week on the show, more negotiations over the Colorado River and a new deal. You're not a woman in engineering if you don't upset the norm. I I pretty much the majority of my life has been upsetting the norm. That episode next week on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams.